While the gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. It's Wednesday, August 31st. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And yes, August 31st, you know what the date means. 600 years ago today, Henry V died. How'd he die? How'd he live? Well, he lived pretty well. He was a king of England. Also, he's remembered for his famous military victories, including the Battle of Agincourt. Maybe Agincourt. I don't know if they pronounce it with the T in England. Agincourt would be in France. That was in 1415. Almost conquered France. And then what happened? As a 35-year-old, he died. And they're still not sure how he died. Now, we should say the reason that we even know or celebrate that he lived, he was a fairly important king in terms of the military, but it's that Shakespeare celebrated him. And he wrote the Henry series of plays. And of course, from that speech, that St. Crispin's Day speech that Henry V gave. He got to eulogize himself through his own fictional mouth via Shakespeare. And it's also the absolute, when anyone asks me about iambic pentameter, and I can't tell you how many times people come up on the street and like, Mike, about iambic pentameter, it's the best. It is the clearest example of the iams and the pentameter and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. But how'd he die? Well, such a glorious figure, such a heroic person, personage from history. They don't really want to tell you how he died because how he died was dysentery, probably. It has the whiff, though not a pleasant whiff, of the acceptable when we say dysentery. But if we call dysentery by what it is most plainly, infectious diarrhea, yes, this great king of England died of infectious diarrhea. Although, as I was researching it, there is some theory that he might have caught the dysentery at the Battle of Meux, M-E-U-X in French. So in French would be meh, and the siege of meh, until the people of meh said no meh. And he was involved in that battle, and then he collapsed and died of dysentery a couple weeks later. But people who know dysentery, the dysenteriate, and they did disinter uh, him years later, but they couldn't find that it was dysentery. The people who know dysentery say, ah, that doesn't fit the time frame. The battle would have been so much before he died. Usually it, uh, it sneaks up on you and grabs hold much quicker. They didn't know then that you treat diarrhea with plenty of fluids. It seems odd, but they didn't know it. So there's another theory that during August of 1422, it was quite hot. They know this, I don't know, from trees and the fossil record or whatever. And he was in armor, so it might have been that he got heat stroke. He was in this heavy armor in the heat. I think that's a little less glorious than even the infectious diarrhea. He got hot. I don't know which is true. I do know that 200 years or so, not quite 200 years after his death, Shakespeare made the king a legend. Though if we had known or grappled with at the time his actual cause of death, Shakespeare and Henry V might have said, and gentlemen in England on latrines shall think their bowels accursed and tummies bleak, or maybe twas the horses in the sun, still then all died for want of Gatorade. On the show today in the spiel, Dan Savage has his say on a woman's issue of the issue of saying women when it comes to the abortion debate. But first, yesterday we talked to Congressman David Cicilline. The representative from Rhode Island is back. 
We will be talking about his experience as an impeachment manager. We'll go through the non-impeachment post Mueller after the impeachment of Ukraine and the impeachment that he presided over. David Cicilline, author of House on Fire, Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson, is up next. Yesterday, we talked to David Cicilline, U.S. congressman from Rhode Island, the first district, small state has two, about his past, about comparing Rhode Island to the national scene, and about his personal forays into the Justice Department. He's one of the few people who've ever been a part of a team to impeach the president. This is detailed in his book, House on Fire, Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. Welcome back. Great to be back. So before we talk about your impeachment, because there are a couple to choose from, tell me about your opinions of, let's even go back prior to the first impeachment, which was over Ukraine, the Mueller report. There was a debate and tension within the Democratic conference about what to do with that report. And you were on the side of this is impeachable. Do you regret now looking back that the Democrats didn't bring articles of impeachment back then? Yeah, I mean, I I write about that in the book. I think what we did in the in the first impeachment, I think like like so many across the country, we were awaiting the results of the Mueller report. We knew that was a thorough investigation. We knew the quality of his leadership. And everyone sort of thought it would make sense to wait until the report were completed to make a determination as to what we do next, which is perfectly sensible. The mistake I think we made is that when the Mueller report was released, I read it that day. I sat in a room and just spent five or six hours, read the whole thing cover to cover. My first reaction was, oh my God, this individual has created impeachable, committed impeachable offenses. We need to move forward and impeach him swiftly. And I think what we did instead was we you know, did what I think we do too often. We paused. We said, we need to really evaluate this. Maybe we need to do some hearings. We you know, just wanted to be deliberative about it. And in the, mm-hmm. what we didn't fully appreciate was the sinister behavior of the Attorney General of the United States uh, William Barr, because what he did is he refused to release the full report, and then he released a redacted version. But before he did that, he released a statement that basically said Donald Trump has been exonerated. This, there's, you know, there's nothing here. Now that was allowed to be out there in the public for a considerable period of time before the report was ultimately released, and even when it was released, it was severely redacted. And so, you know. Americans who are leading busy lives, taking care of their family, going to work every day, they don't have time and they didn't necessarily read the whole Mueller report. They were looking to Democrats to kind of signal to them, is it here? Is it not? And they knew we had been very clear about our views about Donald Trump, that we thought he was not appropriate for him to remain in office, that he was a dangerous threat to our democracy. And I think the danger was we let Barr's evaluation sit out there, his mischaracterization sit out there, and then they watched our reaction. I thought, well, surely if there was enough in there to impeach Donald Trump, they would have moved immediately. So it must not be there. And I think in retrospect, that was a mistake. If we had moved immediately, the response would have been, oh, what's in there is so serious, the Democrats are moving immediately. So, I mean, it's easy to do that, you know, uh, retrospectively and look back on it. But I do think it was a mistake. 
And it, but I think the reason that happened was nobody could have imagined that the Attorney General of the United States would so falsely characterize the findings in the Mueller report and so affirmatively try to mislead the American people about the evidence that was uncovered in that investigation. Yeah, that's true. That was extremely unethical behavior. And when we maybe credit Barr in the last few months for January 6th being his breaking point to some extent, let's remember that. On the other hand, I remember having this show and talking about the game theory of impeachment. And it came down for me, and I still think this is true, that there was no way you were going to get 67 votes in the Senate. And there was also no way that enough people would change your mind if the Democrats had said, we're impeaching because it would mostly be on uh, issues of the cover-up, not the crime, or obstruction of justice and fiddling with Comey and that sort of thing. There's no way in America today to move such a large percentage of the people that it would have redounded to your, say, electoral benefit or great poll numbers. So what would have happened is today we'd be speaking and there would have been literally three impeachments of Donald Trump instead of two. That's what I think the net effect would be. And I guess then the question is, well, still, that's okay. Or might there have been a cost to that impeachment that didn't result in conviction? Yeah, I think we don't know the answer to that. You're right. It may have been that there would be a cost. It it may have been, actually, this is probably not likely, that maybe it would have sobered Donald Trump to understand that there were limits to what he could do, and maybe he would have <laughs> changed his behavior. Unlikely that we did first uh-huh. impeachment, he didn't change uh, his behavior, I think in part because he wasn't convicted and he, he felt emboldened. And that's always a concern. But, but again, I think fundamentally we have a responsibility um, to show both to the president and to the American people that we have the rule of law. We have a set of uh, requirements that people conduct themselves in a certain way. And, you know, there are lots of people who get charged in the criminal justice system who ultimately are acquitted. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be charged. We have a system that says, if you did something wrong, you ought to be formally charged with it and then convicted. If you're not convicted, it doesn't say you should have never been charged, but it means that we made an effort to hold people accountable. You're right. We would have very likely ended up with three impeachments and no convictions. Um, But the people who then voted not to convict the the president would be accountable for their decision and presumably face some political consequence ultimately for doing so. Do you blame as much as Barr deserves blame and now we could retroactively blame the parts of the Democratic caucus that weren't forceful enough? But how much do you blame Mueller? How much do you blame the fact that although he was thorough in his report, He was, I think, bounded by a sense of propriety that's from a bygone era and would not make the recommendation, put it in the laps of the Congress to do what many said as a prosecutor he should have done himself. Yeah, I mean, I was very uh, it was hard to understand that uh, the that Mr. Mueller in his report set forth all of the elements of obstruction of justice and went so far as to say this report does not exonerate the president, but then said, um, I will not make a judgment as to whether or not he committed these offenses because of this uh, uh, memo that had been generated by a prior administration that said a president could not be charged with a crime. Uh, And the idea was, why should I make a judgment about whether or not he's committed a criminal offense since we already, as a department, have said he can't be. That ultimately can only happen once he leaves office. And he sort of punted. Uh, He made it explicit that it was Congress's responsibility uh, to hold him accountable. And that's, of course, what the impeachment process is. So, 
Um, you know, I think he made a judgment based on the existing memorandum. I think that memorandum is wrong. It's also not law. It's a judgment, an opinion from the department. It would have been hard to, to, to uh, revisit that memorandum in the middle of the Mueller investigation, because then it would appear like you were changing it for purposes of facilitating the charging of the president. So I think he right. was, if they had said, you know, two or three years ago, we should look at that memo and decide whether or not prohibiting the prosecution of a sitting president is actually right or not. He might have been able to do that, but it was the prevailing standard in the office. And I think he felt bound by it and probably was in some way, um, even though it was, I think, wrongly uh, uh, advanced. Uh, so yeah. I don't blame him. I think uh, he's a was, was very much a product of the department and was trying very hard to honor the commitments of making sure the department remained uh, uh, impartial and not in any way appear political. So uh, I, I think it would have been very helpful if he had said, look, the president's conduct would constitute an offense uh, if it were not the sitting president. Like, he, you know, he could have come to that conclusion and still said, I can't proceed further because he's a sitting president and I'm going to follow this memorandum. He chose not to do that, which I think complicated things as well. So that's about the blame we apportion or don't to the Mueller report. But I want to ask you about Mueller the man. And a lot of this is in the book. I remember when he testified before Congress, before your committee, he was not forthcoming and he seemed confused and he was looking around. He seemed his age. Uh, he didn't know who was talking to him. He stuttered, just a very poor witness who didn't seem interested in being a good witness. And in the book, you write about how the Congress, the members of Congress got together backstage or in chambers and said, oh my God, what is going on? Now, I remember at the time, leading up to the Mueller report, all the stuff that was written about him and said about him, built him up to be this guy who was eight feet tall, and if you'll excuse the expression, pissed lightning, right? I don't know if you were getting the same information I was, but he was a guy who still wore his wristwatch on the inside because he didn't want to give off a flash of light to the Viet Cong. He was the guy who rallied the department after 9-11. He even went in and cracked heads in the NFL and figured out how their, how their mailroom worked when they were investigating players. He, it was a myth. And that's my question. Did you have insight into the actual man and what he was like in the year 2020, not the year, you know, 19, 1999 or 2002? Was it a shock because he was essentially uh, an opaque personality to you and the members of the committee? Yes. I think the thing that was very difficult is for those who had followed the career of uh, Mr. Mueller. I mean, he was all the things you described and the work of the investigation reflected that. I mean, the report and the work that they did was extraordinary. And for me, it was hard to watch because for someone who had such a, a history and such a uh, reputation and had done such extraordinary important work that I think made him a patriot uh, of our democracy, the idea that for many people, the last time they kind of really got to evaluate him was in that hearing was, I think, really um, regrettable because I don't think it reflected both the quality of his work and who he was and the work that he did and the important role he played in an effort to preserve our democracy. But it was, it was jarring because it was so different from everything we knew about him, from everything we had ever seen, and even from the contents of the report that were strong and insightful and detailed. Um, but I think it was the judgment of, of 
people higher than me in rank that he had to come before the committee to officially present the report. There was sort of no way for that not to happen. Um, but uh, it was a tough day because it, he was a man who I think deserved to be revered and held up and, and, and honored. And I think the Republicans used it in a way that was both unfair and didn't reflect really who Robert Mueller was. So then the first official impeachment of Trump happened over the withdrawal of or the withholding of Ukrainian aid. One Republican, Mitt Romney, voted for one of the charges, but it was partisan. Then comes January 6th, which you write about, and Congress decides we need to have another impeachment, even though the president uh, has left office, is leaving office, which is fine and constitutional, despite the objections of his defenders. So... I think that America, or at least the part of America who wasn't in the thrall of Donald Trump, was very impressed with the job you did, the presentation you gave. You even talk about how Republican senators who were never going to vote to convict told you that you were doing a great job. Uh, Like Lindsey Graham said that. Ted Cruz said that. I don't know much about Ted Cruz personally, but that seems out of character for him. Um, Were you and the other members... How much hope did you have? If I could have polled you the day before the votes, what odds do you think you would have given, Raskin would have given, Nagis would have given, the other members uh, who are managing the impeachment, that you'd actually get to 67 votes on a conviction? Yeah, I think all of us throughout the entire proceeding um, wanted to believe, like, in the end, they're going to do the right things. The, The evidence is overwhelming. And in the face of that, they may not want to do it, but they're going to do the right thing because they're going to see that the country has seen this evidence too. And there's no way to explain acquitting Donald Trump. And so I think we all believed, you know, 70% that we'd get there, 80%. Um, oh, I think, interesting. Yeah. I think, and also, you know, you're in the middle of a trial and you, you have to believe you're going to prevail. You're going to, you're, you're making your case. And right. I think what, you've, you've what, been there as a defense attorney yeah, hundreds like, of times, yeah. right? And so yeah. you're like, think, we're going to convince them. And of course, never had a jury that comes to it with judgment. So, when you're doing a real jury voir dire, you say, have you made a decision or, or already have an opinion about the guilt or innocence of this defendant? If right. you have, you're normally thrown off the jury. These are senators who are making public statements about either the his his uh, innocence or guilt already. So it's kind of yeah. a different kind of jury. Right, right. But Were you on I, the phone with the defendant when he was committing his crimes? <laughs> exactly. so, I mean, yeah, yeah. so I think we were all like very hopeful. And, and, you know, we just kept every day keep thinking, how could he possibly be acquitted on this? What we, I think, didn't fully comprehend is that they were actually going to be able to uh, be acknowledge that the facts were overwhelming and still acquit him by this, handy little thing they did by saying, oh, this, this isn't whether or not Donald Trump did this. It's just you can't impeach a former president. Of course, that is not true. I don't think there was a single senator who voted to acquit, who made a public statement that said Donald Trump is not guilty. I think if you look at the public statements, every one of them referenced, uh, oh, well, he's a former president. You're not allowed to impeach him. In fact, Mitch McConnell got up at the end of the impeachment trial. We were all in the back room watching and thinking, this guy should have been an impeachment manager. I mean, he was yeah. going through the evidence. Unequivocally. I and remember watching, said, it was like a 20-minute speech, the first yeah. 18, where, oh, he's leading up to right. conviction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. Did you notice a stylistic differences difference between the members of the, um, the uh, 
between among the impeachment managers who are former prosecutors, former defense attorneys like yourself, or not even lawyers? No, I will tell you, uh, we had just an incredible team in the second impeachment. Uh, part of it was we were all friends. We were not only colleagues, but we were generally friends with each other. So we had really pre-existing and strong relationships. Uh, the other part of it is that we were led by Jamie Raskin, who was a magnificent leader of the effort, not only because he's brilliant and understands the Constitution and the you know evidence, but also because I've never seen someone with more talent who has a greater skill of making sure that every single person has their talent maximized as well. And he was just an incredible leader of the effort, obviously doing it at a really difficult time. And it was a very, co I think we say we're bound in a way that will uh, exist for the rest of our lives, our, our, the impeachment managers. I want to ask you about how you get along with other members of Congress who are, well, in the book, you call out Zoe Lofgren, for instance, who's a Democrat, but you think uh, protects the big tech companies too much, and you're uh, in charge of the subcommittee that calls them to account. Uh, I'm sure that you have relations with uh, Republicans that range from cordial to you just don't understand what planet they're on. But then there are some, a breed that are, I think, a little bit apart, but they are your colleagues in full. You write... I thought this was interesting. You write of uh, Representative Paul Gosar. Gosar, whose prior claim to fame involved a fight to strip a tortoise of its protection as an endangered species, was not a mature person. Now, that's interesting because just last week I interviewed Patrick Leahy and he wrote about pa Paul Gosar and he used this exact phrase. Orchestrated by one of the House's most bombastic members, Paul Gosar, a former dentist representing Western Arizona. Until this moment, his claim to fame was that his own siblings had run a television ad opposing his reelection. So apparently Paul Gosar has competing claims to fame and none of them are good. <laughs> but when you see or regard a guy like this, do you look the other way? Does every moment that you see him or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or Cawthorn, who's still in there now but won't be, does it cause a part of your spleen to clench a little bit? What's the reaction? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, look, there are some uh, colleagues who, who you've described who are on committees that you serve on, and so you're required to interact with them. There are some who I think you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Pogosar, that I think, you know, make it uh, a, their life's work to be controversial and bombastic and great fundraisers that you frankly don't take as serious legislators. Uh, I talk about something in the book about, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene referencing me as Mussolini, which, you know, people sort of laughed off uh, until I got a call from the Italian ambassador who thanked me for pushing back. And I, my first reaction was, Mr. Ambassador, I can't believe that you've taken time out of your day to, to even make this phone call. And he said, you don't understand. You know, Mussolini represents a very dark period in Italian history. This was reported all over the Italian press. This is a sitting member of Congress who's invoking yeah. the name of Mussolini. Like, she just created we, an international incident. That's at right. A they don't realize yeah. that this is a, you know, a crazy person. And so right. it makes you realize that these are individuals who have tremendous responsibilities. And when they speak or they say and do things, it's heard sometimes around the world. So um, it, it's why my call, my, my sort of siren call of this book of like, this is a very critical midterm our democracy is is hanging in the balance and 
you know, this is, book is really about making sure people understand that we have a very serious threat to our democracy being led by Donald Trump and the Trump loyalists. And this isn't hyperbole. This isn't, um, you know, something people shouldn't take seriously. And I hope by reading the book, they'll further understand what's at stake in the upcoming elections. David Cicilline, representative from Rhode Island, is author of the newly published House on Fire, Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. Thanks so much, Representative Cicilline. Thanks for having me. For today's spiel, I bring you Jeff Maurer. You may remember Jeff. He was one of the first guests of this, season two of The Gist. And he joined me as a former John Oliver writer who has his own Substack and podcast, which is great. I might be wrong. Jeff's also a former government official, specifically the EPA, which will be important to note as you listen to his spiel. I should also say that Jeff, since he began his Substack and podcast, which I highly recommend, has been hired to write for the NBC show American Auto. And today he's going to be talking about, you know, classic comedy premise. How good will the government be in investing Inflation Reduction Act money? So it's like airplanes kids these days, and investing Inflation Reduction Act money. Here now, Jeff Maurer. And now, the spiel. So Congress recently passed a bill, which I think is quaint, but they did it. The Inflation Reduction Act does many things, but probably the most notable thing is that it devotes $386 billion American dollars, the best kind, to energy and climate. Now, that is a lot of money. That is more than I make in a year. And I think it's fair to ask, how much bang are we likely to get for our 386 billion bucks? Now, when I was a young economics student, this was depressingly long ago, I learned that most economists believe that government spending is usually less efficient than private sector spending. And that is probably usually true. Personally, I am no stranger to a government boondoggle. Before I was a professional joke elf, I worked for the Environmental Protection Agency. I was there back when ethanol was a hot topic. Ethanol, if you don't know, is basically gas made from corn. It is the rare idea that is every bit as stupid as it sounds, at least from a climate perspective, because ethanol is about as bad as regular gas, and maybe even a bit worse than regular gas, in terms of carbon emissions. But that did not stop the government from throwing a lot of money at ethanol for a long time. And my point is, if you are arguing that the government sometimes makes bad decisions, I agree. But I think it's also worth asking, what about the private sector? How good are they at investing their money? Well, I have thoughts about that too. And they come, ironically, from my time in government. When I was at EPA, we were frequently involved in this pilot project or that pilot project. Sometimes we were giving it money. More often we were giving it, you know, moral support, which I'm sure they really appreciated. We were giving the support to some technology that could save the world or could end up being precisely nothing. And we would sometimes visit the companies behind these pilot projects. And on those trips, we were basically in the role of a possible investor. We were kicking the tires. We were seeing what the project was all about. So let me tell you what those trips were like. 
The company is always owned by two guys. One is American, one's Dutch. Too Dutch, quite frankly. It's okay to be Dutch, of course, but, you know, I think within limits, please, like, keep it respectable. Anyway, Peter and Dirk, or whatever their names are, they have an amazing idea. They are going to build a skyscraper entirely out of butter. Or something like that. Something incredible. A helicopter made of pine cones. A steam shovel powered by ghillie flowers. Something that, if it did become part of our lives, it would be an absolute game changer. But it is not yet an absolute game changer. When we are there, it is a prototype. And the prototype is legitimately amazing. Oh my god. You made a monorail out of cheese. Just like they had on the Jetsons. What a brave new world we are living in. Unfortunately, that prototype cost them $4 million to make. And to run it for 20 seconds cost another 100000 And the question, whether you are the government or a private investor, is... Will this project eventually be viable? How does anyone answer that? <laughs> With any accuracy whatsoever. Who on the planet really knows enough about the specifics of the technology? What the marketplace looks like way down the road? Whether other technologies that are needed to make this thing work will come online? You could put all six sharks from Shark Tank together like some sort of venture capital Megatron, and they would still basically just be throwing darts at a dartboard. I want green technology to work. We all do. I want to live in a future that has things like direct air capture of carbon and hydrogen fuel cell planes and lab-grown meat that doesn't look like Satan's afterbirth. And I am encouraged by the large sums of money that are being invested in those technologies. I really hope that they work. I don't know that they will work. At least not on the scale at which we really need them to work. And it is not impossible for me to imagine that some private money might just be chasing hype and the promise of the idea and the desire to change the world and maybe some investors don't totally understand the technology after all. Isn't that exactly what Theranos was? My point is that investing in much green technology is so speculative and requires us to look so far into a future that none of us can predict that there's a chance the government might do basically as well as the private sector would do. And we do have a bit of information here. The 2009 stimulus bill invested $92 billion in clean energy technology. And, as I recently wrote about on my substack, the good people at the International Institute for Industrial Environmental Economics, or IEEE, that's what it is, I-I-I-E-E. -E. Anyway, the folks at IEEE crunched the numbers as best as you can in such a complex area, and it looks like the money from 2009 basically did what it was supposed to do. Carbon emissions are down, green energy production is way, way up, how much of it is because of the 92 billion? How much of it is because of me turning my Twitter avatar into a picture of the planet on every Earth Day? Hmm. It's impossible to say. But it looks like the last round of money more or less worked.
If I got to pick a climate change policy that I would bet has the highest probability of success, I probably would have gone with a carbon tax. Basically because a carbon tax does a lot of things, including leveraging private investment. And if I had to pick between private and public investment, I would still go private. But this is important. I did not get to pick a climate change policy. A carbon tax was never on the table because it is about as popular as pubic lice. So we're going with what, in my view, is plan B. And I think it's got a chance to work. Is there going to be another Solyndra? There are going to be dozens of Solyndras. It's an investment portfolio. There are going to be hits and misses. The batting average is what really counts. And I think the government has a shot at producing a batting average that is at least in the ballpark. That is double wordplay if you are scoring at home, at least in the ballpark of the private sector. We'll never know how $386 billion spent at the exact same time by the private sector would have worked out. Not even the good folks at IE can crunch those numbers. But even I, who sees this as a bit of a second best option, I think this could end up pretty good. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is manager of Peachfish Productions. Wished I had asked David Cicilline as a former defense attorney from Rhode Island, do you think Lizzie Borden really did it? The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>